Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Yes, Andy Murray is back, ready for the defence of Britain's Davis Cup, and he's our very special guest this week on The Tennis Podcast. What's life been like since the birth of his daughter, Sophia? Will things change going forward? And has he been asking fellow new parent, Amelie Moresmo, for any advice? Yeah, obviously she's, you know, a few months kind of ahead of, of us. Um, I'm quite competitive, so I'm hoping that Sophia will be able to catch up. Uh, <laughs> He also tells Catherine Whittaker about his pride at seeing brother Jamie win a Grand Slam, his plans to play in the Davis Cup quarterfinals if Britain get through against Japan, and how he sees himself playing well into his 30s. That's all coming up on the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. My name is David Law. I'll be talking to Catherine Whittaker, who did that interview with Andy Murray, after you've heard from the man himself. And we'll be hearing the memories that you all have of him. Ten years since he won the ATP title in San Jose, his first of many. Now, Catherine spoke to Andy at the Queen's Club, where he'll return in June to try to win a fifth Aegon Championships title. You may remember that players win that tournament and then lift the enormous silver trophy that goes to the winner every year. Too big to take home, that one, isn't it? But they're now going to have something to take home in the future. I've got Stephen Farrow here with me the tournament director of the A-Gun Championships, to tell me what that thing is. What, what are you going to give these players, Stephen? Well, all our winners, uh, starting last year in 2015, are going to receive a quarter-sized replica of the Aegon Championships trophy. Um, I mean, the trophy itself is 120-odd years old, a um, bit too big to carry home, as you say, David. Um, and so we thought, given how historic the trophy is, how special the tournament is, it would be an appropriate thing to give all our champions. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, we're, we're talking Andy Murray memories. We're going to hear from all of our listeners at Tennis Podcast on Twitter what they remember from him. I mean, goodness me, there's plenty to choose from, isn't there? What, what are yours? Well, we've got a decade of memories of Andy at Queen's. I mean, obviously, he played his first tour match at Queen's, which, um, which, uh, which is really something for us as an event. Um, and certainly the success he's had with us has been spectacular. Uh, for me, I, I would think about that, that shot between the legs that he did on the Monday final in 2011 against Songa. Um, obviously last year when, um, when unfortunately due to the rain, I made him play twice in a day. Um, yeah, that was your fault, wasn't it? it? Pretty much. Um, and he, he, he came through and was successful and it was really thrilling for everyone who was there to see it. But, 
but I, I also feel fortunate because you know I, I was I was there in in the stadium when he won Wimbledon in 2013, when he won the Olympics, and obviously when he won the Davis Cup for Britain last November, and all three of which were really special moments. But I, but I suppose like the, the the first sort of exhilarating Murray moment that I would think of is um, when he beat Gasquet at Wimbledon when he was two sets down, came back to win three two. He did that 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 shot from a ridiculous angle outside the tram lines that that turned out to be a winner, um, and the the whole centre court crowd roared and. And, and you know, I think uh, uh, for, for me, that's probably my, my first memory of um, of Andy. Yeah, I can understand that. Now, what about Andy Murray himself? He's had a busy, busy time of things of late, hasn't he? I mean, the last time you all would have seen him would have been on that Rod Laver Arena when he was obviously very emotional just after losing out to Novak Djokovic in the final. So let's hear from him talking to Catherine Whitaker. Thanks for talking to us here at the Queen's Club. It's always strange, isn't it, coming here out of tournament time. It's so different, but it also has that feel about it still, doesn't it? And I imagine as a four-time champion, that feel probably is as strong for you as just about anyone. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I come back here quite a lot during the year to, to practice because I like it here. It's a really, really nice club. And, you know, any events that you play actually at clubs, I think, are, you know, more special. Um you know, there's a lot of history here. Um, you know, they put on a fantastic event every single year. But yeah, I mean, coming back at this time of year when it's completely empty and stuff is also um, very nice. And the courts look like they could be played on just now, which is amazing considering we've just gone through. Or still, are we still in winter? I think we are. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. All thanks to Graham Kimpton, of course. Um, last time we saw you was at the end of a very, I imagine, exhausting, emotional Australian Open for you. Said you were going to be on the first flight home. How, on reflection, did it feel to get home when that the wheels touched down on the tarmac in London? How did you feel? Yeah, I just I felt relieved, but also you know excited. I just kind of yeah, I just wanted to be home, like by the end of the the event I was just yeah really looking forward to getting home and hopefully being there for the the birth and I was and you know I got to spend a few days at home with with Kim as well you know I'd, I had hardly seen her um actually because through December she wasn't able to travel and we did um training block in Dubai and then I had a few days um at back home so I saw her for a couple of days but then you know, I went up to Scotland for Christmas and then straight over to, to Australia for five weeks. So I hadn't seen her for a long time. Um, and, yeah, it was just nice to get to spend a few days with her as well um, and see her at the end of the, the pregnancy before she gave birth. And it's been good. You say it's been good. I imagine that's a bit of an understatement. Can you, most people, when they become a parent for the first time, sort of say it's almost impossible to put into words. Can you try and explain what the last two, three weeks have been like for you? Um yeah, I mean, obviously things have, have changed. I mean, we're very lucky that um, her baby's been really good so far, so we can't really complain. She's been sleeping well and all those sorts of all those sorts of things. So that's that's made things a, a little bit easier. But it's just you know a huge change in responsibility and priorities. Really, you know, it's also something at the end of you know the day and when I get up in the morning, it's like something that I really look forward to every, every day because things obviously change so quickly um, with kids at, at that age um, and yeah it's been yeah, it's been amazing I've, I've really enjoyed it so far um, yeah not particularly looking forward to going away from her for the first time when I go up to Birmingham even though it's an hour and a half away um, from where we live but um, 
yeah, that'll be a challenge, I think. Lots of Skyping and FaceTime, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'll be trying, yeah. Well, Davis Cup is the next time we'll see you on a tennis court defending that title that you, of course, won last year. You would have had every excuse, a legitimate excuse under the sun not to play that tie, but you committed to it early on. Is that a marker of just how much that tournament means to you? Yeah, I mean, I, and also, you know, I love the, the guys as well. I mean, the, the team, like what we achieved last year is something that, you know, I never expected, but is going to be with us with us forever. Um, everyone is extremely close on the team as well. And yeah, I feel a responsibility to them as much as, as anyone else um, to, to try and be part of that and help the, the team as much as I can. Um, you know, it's going to be a tough match against... Uh, a tough match against Japan. They have have a good team with with a lot of depth, um, and yeah, the, the surface isn't much of a benefit. I don't think for for either team. They they all like playing on hard courts as well. So we'll need the crowd to get right behind us. And I think coming back as defending champions, um, I think it'll be be a great atmosphere. And of course, after that, it's Indian Wells, it's Miami, then the clay court season and the busy summer that an Olympic year brings. Have you had a chance to think yet about what your year, your schedule might look like this year and how different it'll be to previous years with the new arrival? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's not going to change massively. Obviously, with the Olympics, that around that period, it makes things a little bit um, tricky, but I'll I'll kind of finalise my schedule depending on whether we win the first round or not. If we win the first round, then obviously that changes things for Cincinnati and Toronto potentially. Obviously, I'll play you know the the quarterfinals of the the Davis Cup. Um, if we get through, then obviously the Olympics would be my priority before the the U.S. Open. So really depends a bit on the next ten days what what will happen with my schedule. The rest is fairly self-explanatory I'm playing Monte Carlo this year um, Madrid and Rome before the French Open and then obviously Queens uh, only on the grass of course joining you for lots of that will be your coach Emily Moresmo who's been through becoming a parent for the first time recently herself how much contact with her have you had about that have you sought her advice have you talked much about it um, I spoke to her I spoke spoken to her a couple of times uh, actually yesterday the day before yeah, we spoke for 45 minutes uh, um, an hour and yeah, obviously she's you know a few months kind of ahead of, of us um, I'm quite competitive so I'm hoping that Sophia will be able to catch up uh, <laughs> catch up quickly um, but yeah she's she, you know it's obviously great to speak to, to parents um, to get any advice um, you know my mother-in-law has been around a lot and has, has helped out a ton too so yeah I got a lot of people trying to help and, and advise us so that we can do as good a job as we can how uh, how's Jamie been on the uncle front uh so Jamie Jamie's seen her a couple of times I think um he was over in uh Dubai it was quite <laughs> the first time he held her he kind of like his arm was like up like this and he was like so tight about it and then he sort of over like the 20 30 minutes he was holding it kind of relaxed um a little bit but um yeah he he was good and yeah i think everyone's just yeah everyone's just excited and pumped i think when there's a new kid in the family everyone everyone loves it 
Of course, you watched Jamie win his first Grand Slam men's doubles title down in Australia. How was for that for you, being able to see that, film it even, such a big achievement in his career? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, to get to see him do that, you know, I never, in, until the last year or so, I didn't think yeah, I'd get to see him do that. He'd only, I want to say, only made it past the third round of a slam once in doubles um, <clears throat> until last year. Um, at Wimbledon and then yeah, he's made the final of three in a row he's number two in the world obviously won the Davis Cup and you know he he deserves to be where he is with the results that he's had in the the big events he made obviously a big change in his partner at the end of last year which was you know tough but you know a, a brave change because they'd done extremely well together um, and yeah obviously paid off in Australia and really really proud of him um yeah and i hope he can hope he can keep going i'm sure you've been reminded a few times recently that it's almost 10 years exactly to the day since you won your very first title in san jose there are a few videos doing the rounds of that final against leighton hewitt have you been reminiscing at all about that or even watched any of those videos at all no, I haven't seen any of the videos, but um, I actually spoke about it with Kim a few days ago because uh, someone had told us or messaged us that um, yeah, it had been 10 years, and that was actually the first time we ever went away on a trip um, together. And, you know, I didn't have a coach with me that week um, either. And it, it was Valentine's Day during the week um, as well, and we went out for a Valentine's dinner with James Auckland, who I was playing doubles with um, that week, which she was a bit upset about. Um, she didn't tell me that at the time. Uh, and then, yeah, obviously winning the tournament was nice. At the end, you know, Hewitt was someone that, you know, I loved watching growing up. Um, you know, he was a great, great player, and to win against him 7-6 and third in the final was amazing way to win my first tournament just to draw a bit of a parallel Nick Kyrgios won his first tournament last week in Marseille I know you're a fan of his what's your take on his recent progress and where possibly the next 10 years could take him yeah I think you know obviously winning the first tournament is you know is big I, I, I remember what it was like um for me and not all players say the same thing it, it does you know it does make a difference it gives you a little bit of extra confidence um you know, Nick obviously has a great game. Um, you know, he just needs to be more consistent throughout the year. And you know, you you can't just sort of turn up at slams and having done nothing the three four weeks before and expect to to win it. You know, being consistent throughout the year and competing against the best players week in week out prepares you for the the Grand Slams, and that's you know that's the next challenge for him. Um, yeah, I'm happy that, that he won his, won his first event. Um, hopefully he can keep it going. And just finally, a word from you on your future. I remember when Andre Agassi had his first, the first of his children, he said one of the first thoughts that occurred to him was that he desperately wanted to keep playing tennis until his children were of an age that they could have those memories for, for life of him playing. Is that a thought that's crossed your mind at all? Um, I, I haven't thought about that so much um, yet I think I have thought about playing for longer just because of guys like Andre and Roger um, you know even Feliciano Lopez and David Ferrer you know they're 33, 34, 35 years old and 
you know still right up there at the top of the game um close to their career high ranking so you know maybe when i was younger you think oh you know career finishes at 30 31 for for most players but you know some of the guys that are around just now has made you think actually you know it might not be done in two or three years maybe i still have six seven years left of playing i don't know i still i still enjoy it i like the training i love the traveling um i don't know if i'm gonna like being away from my daughter i don't imagine i, I will so it's um yeah i just have to, to wait and see and also if my body holds up as well um you know if i stay healthy then i'll, I'll keep playing as as long as i can i think well, we hope so too. Andy, thank you very much and congratulations. Thank you. Cheers. Well, Catherine Whitaker with Andy Murray. And Catherine Whitaker, you're still with me, Andy. We've let him go. But what a great chat you just had. And, and uh, wasn't he relaxed and happy as a new dad? So I think we expected he probably would be. Yeah, you're sitting in the very seat that Andy Murray just vacated. I've swapped a superior podcast partner for an inferior one. All right. Um, yeah, he was really relaxed and happy. I thought at first that I couldn't see any traces on his face of fatigue or anything. But when I saw him up close, I thought there were just just a couple. And he did talk about, you know, how he doesn't mind getting up early now to... to uh, to tend to his new daughter. I mean, I can't imagine loving anyone or anything enough not to be annoyed about being woken up in the middle of the night or in the early hours of the morning. But everyone says it happens, and Andy Murray is proof of that. So. Do, do, do you know, uh, uh, I, I, my gag to him, it's terrible, I did say this, was, uh, Andy, where are your bags? He said, which bags? I said, the ones under your eyes. You thought that was good enough to repeat on the podcast, did you? How did it go down at the time? He sort of stared at me as if to say, really? Anyway, you know, he, he, he went with it. He gave me a little laugh. A little laugh. Did he look at you like I'm looking at you right now? Not quite that bad. Uh, but anyway, um, it, was, uh, it was pretty much what I would have expected in terms of his reaction to, to everything that's uh, gone on over the past um, few weeks of his life. I mean, when we saw him on the court... After that Australian Open defeat, he was so drained and so emotional. And I could really, I could really. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. 
Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. He empathised with what he was going through. Uh, I've been in tennis tournaments myself when when waiting for the birth of my kids and uh you do wonder where your priorities lie at times and um and uh, it's just great isn't it that he got back in time everything worked out well Sophia Olivia has been born it seems fine and he he did have a twinkle in his eye I mean let's be honest you know he did what did he do three or four interviews while we were here and in every one of them, the moments it was brought up, you you saw his his face light up. Yeah, he he. Uh, I mean, he didn't gush about it in a. You know, he was very British and Andy Murray like about it. Whilst at the same time being completely charming and obviously um, overcome with emotion about it. Yeah, his face did light up, and that sort of said everything. It's interesting what you're saying about the Australian Open because in the first few days before what happened with Nigel Sears, which thankfully turned out to be nothing more than uh, bad sushi. But before that happened, you know, Eurosport did lots of interviews with him. You will have interviewed him lots of times as, as well for Five Live. He was saying that it was actually helping him, the di- the distraction of, you know, he, he was a bit surprised at how he was reacting to it, that tennis not feeling like the be-all and end-all was actually relieving the pressure a bit and really helping him and then it felt like with what happened to Nigel Sears that all took a bit of a turn for the worse and it was just the straw that broke the camel's back and suddenly what had been playing in the positive for him all started playing in, in the negative so you know when I asked him that question about how he felt when the when he touched down it was obvious you know he just kept saying I just wanted to get home and we all know that feeling, don't we? I mean, I don't know it in the context of anybody expecting a baby, but we can all relate to that feeling, I think. We can. One of the things that you asked him about uh, the 10-year anniversary of that that win in San Jose, it was interesting how animated he became about that, how vivid the memories were for him of that particular week of his life. Do you remember it? Do you remember it at the time? Because I certainly do. And I've been asking everybody on on Twitter for their Andy Murray memories. What are yours early on? I absolutely do remember that day. I remember, I think while I was watching it, my dad saying, oh, he'll regret not having had a haircut before this match. And maybe looking back at those that footage, he does regret not having a haircut. Now that 10 years on, we're talking about it again. Um, I remember that match vividly. I remember his first ever tour win here at Queen's vividly. Uh, and I think even more vividly, his subsequent loss to Thomas Johansson when he went over on his ankle. And of course, the legacy of that 
lives on. He wears ankle braces to this day, and and he says that is is because of what happened at Queen's against Thomas Janssen. He came so close, and a similar thing happened uh, against Nalbandian at Queen's uh, at Wimbledon uh, the same year, and and it was obvious he had promise. But you still can't go making any predictions about somebody being oh, okay. a multiple grandson. Not with any confidence. I mean, oh, okay. he, he said himself in a couple of the interviews he did today, you know, he was asked to look back and reflect on whether he would have imagined that he'd achieved what he has in the last 10 years. And he said, probably not, you know, I hoped. But I, you know, probably have exceeded my own expectations. Yeah. I mean, who couldn't be satisfied with what he has achieved if you look at it in any rational way? I suppose it's only because of the the ridiculous nature of the titles accumulated by Federer, Nadal and Djokovic that his ends up looking like not that big a deal by comparison. But, you know, when you look at his career and the, the boxes he's ticked now, it's a pretty rounded career, and uh, I, I suspect he's got further still to go. My first memory of watching him play tennis, I remember I'd gone to the uh, the lawn tennis writer's dinner that we used to have at the end of the year in December when he was a 16-year-old, and he got given, I think, Young Player of the Year or something like that, and he had to go up and make a speech. And you've n- not seen a more uncomfortable public speaker than he was that day he'd got his piece of paper he'd clearly been practicing he just wanted to get through it and um and I I thought oh you know this is he is quite young to be put in that sort of position and and addressing a, a huge room full of people but I'd never seen him play and he was having those knee problems that that were were causing him issues early on in his career uh of issues I think with the kneecaps and um I uh I'd never seen him play, but I'd heard from Mark Petschy what type of player he was. And the first chance I got to see him courtside was at the US Open in 2004 when he reached the junior final. And my own view watching him was that he was uncharacteristic for a British player because of his patience from the back of the court, the way he would extend rallies. He wouldn't panic. He wouldn't go for things. And I actually thought... He's going to be really good on slow surfaces, but I'm not convinced he will ever be able to translate this to quick surfaces. And I think there is probably a ceiling to his game because of how indulgent he was from the baseline. He just seemed to to want to keep these rallies going forever. And uh, and it, it wasn't, I don't think, until... I mean, certainly that Johansson match. I remember Johansson saying, "I just don't, I don't know how to get the ball past him." Uh, such was his ability to to retrieve the ball. But I don't think it was until he played Nadal at the Australian Open, I think, in two thousand and seven, when we saw a different Andy Murray come out of the, the the box. It was it was as though he'd gone onto the court thinking, "I can't beat this guy playing my game." And he played another game. That was the match when he sort of debuted that incredible cross-court backhand, wasn't it? I mean, obviously he'd played cross-court backhands before that, but suddenly he ju- just unleashed this almighty weapon, which Nadal, I mean, he Nadal being pretty much at his peak or one of his various peaks then, learned how to master it throughout the match. And at that stage, I think the five-set fitness came into play, but that 
that is what I remember of that match. I watched it from a ski resort that I was working at in France. Ski resort? That I was working at on my year abroad in France. Um, and uh, watching it with French commentary, desperately trying to convince myself that I was completely fluent in French by that point and understanding everything that was being said in French commentary, even though, you know, they're speaking so fast, I can barely understand English commentary at times. But of course, I was completely au fait with what was being said. Um, and it was that, it was that angled um, backhand cross court that, you know, has been, I suppose, his trademark since then. I still get a kick out of seeing it every time. Let's hear a few tennis podcast listener memories of Andy Murray. Ewan McQueen says the US Open junior uh, title thought that there was a determination in him to reach the top, but that his fitness would have to improve. Well, certainly it would have to. And you remember him vomiting on the court in one of the US Open matches when he was trying to, to keep up with, uh, I can't exactly remember who it was, maybe it was Arno Clement or Andre Pavel or someone like that. Um, we have uh, Ali who says uh, she thought that Monfils was the more talented when they were in the juniors, and Andy looked decent, but frankly, nothing special. And it, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that Monfils is the guy who won three slams in a year at a junior level, but Murray has overtaken him. Yeah, Monfils was the junior number one for, for at least a year, I think, beyond a year. And Murray, I think, peaked at number five in the world in juniors. Of course, he won that US Open. But, I mean, it, it it's a very, very poor science um, using juniors as a measure for... I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt having success in juniors. And, you know, Monfils is a discussion in his, in itself, in himself, isn't he? Sh he should really have done more, but equally... If he had done more with his career so far, we we might have enjoyed what he has done less, which, you know, so would we change anything? I'm not so sure that we would. But anyway, um, yeah, he, on, on paper, results-wise, he absolutely did show the more promise. But, um, and I don't think it's a reflection on how hard they worked or maximising... I mean, they've just got completely different attitudes to the sport, haven't they? I mean, in one of the interviews that, that we just saw Andy do he was asked about you know how hard he works and is there anything that you feel you can do differently in your game to try and possibly in your training to try and possibly match Novak Djokovic and he said I've thought and thought about this and I don't think I can train any harder than I am doing he said I could maybe change things in my training and he's always making minor tweaks to you know it's trial and error isn't it I suppose but he said I don't think I could train any harder. And that's it. He's going to retire with no stone left unturned. He, he will have maximised his potential. Whether that means two slams or more, we don't know. We have uh, Mithy who says, uh, I came to Andy pretty late, actually. That Australian Open match against Rafa in 07, he was already very good then, of course. Uh, Judith says, saw him on court two against George Bastel at Wimbledon in 2005 and thought he would be huge. It was his variety of shots and pace that impressed me. Andy McNeil says, BBC News after his US Open junior win, young Scott, same age, called Andy, same as me. He was only ever going to become my hero, wasn't he? Gavin says, I was aware after winning the junior US Open in 04 that this was a proper player. I watched him in... 
Wimbledon uh, against uh, Stepanek in 05 and loved his don't care attitude. On that subject, I remember Murray, the first time I saw him being interviewed was by my colleague on Five Live, Jonathan Overend, in, in 04 after that US Open junior win. And he was he was so different to the man we've just seen for the last couple of hours. Come, not, not that he was impolite. I mean, we've just seen a guy coming up and shaking everybody's hand, being really... Pretty charming with everybody, but down to earth, doing a great job. Back then, he was a rough diamond, and he just said whatever was on his mind. He didn't give it a, a moment's thought other than to just say what he was feeling. It was, it was raw. It was, um, it was genuinely fascinating. You, you would sit, sit there. I, I sat there listening to this interview and thought, oh my word, we've got, we've got a character on our hands here because he was fearless to talk to, and. And I think now we see a version of that. We see just a more mature version of that. But I think it's taken him a while to come to that because of how badly burned he was by that entirely ridiculous anyone but England incident, which, I mean, I cannot stress enough how ridiculous that is and how... Because he was joking. He was joking around with Tim Henman and somebody reported his quotes as fact. Absolutely. I mean, how preposterous how thoroughly preposterous and it still follows him around now I don't think he cares anymore that it follows him around but it does you know when I talk to people or just meet people friends of friends or whatever and they ask what I do and I say I work in tennis and oh do you know Andy Murray yes I've interviewed him oh but he said that anyone but England thing didn't he so he must be a douche I mean it still follows him around which is dreadful and I think it burned him so badly that he retreated from being himself um, for a little while, but now he's reached a level of, I don't know, maturity sounds thoroughly patronising, which I don't mean to sound, but he's just able to be completely natural and himself without censoring himself in any way, which is quite a difficult balance to strike, I think, and it certainly makes for a great interviewee, I think. Well, he's certainly, he's surrounded by a group of people now who I think understand who he is, and they... They put him into situations where he's able to be himself and get across the real Andy Murray. We remember the documentary he did a couple of years ago, uh, the year he won Wimbledon, in fact. And I think that that started to change the perception of people and realise this is just a decent guy. He's all right, Andy Murray. And, um, And that's really all you want, really, isn't it? Just people to see you for what you really are. And I think, well, we think he's a pretty decent fella. Yeah, nothing, if, if, you know, seeing a man walking his dogs, if that's not going to convince you what a decent bloke he is, nothing is. Catherine Whitaker, dog lover. Uh, a couple more. What about when Andy pulled off the stunning comeback in front of a roaring centre court crowd against Gasquet Wimbledon, says Vipple. Uh, we have uh, Alex, who says, uh, oh no, Alex is his rubbish. Um, we have Mike, who says, I remember the three setter against Thomas Johansson at Queen's in 05. He had an attitude which showed he wasn't going to be afraid of anyone. M said the 05. Uh, Wimbledon against Nalbandian. It was the middle of the night in New Zealand time. Uh, in New Zealand is it, is where Emmy was watching that. And she was thinking, oh, he's nearly there, but not quite. And uh, Tom says, the Gasquet match at Wimbledon in 08 made me get into tennis. And I'm still playing to this day. Hashtag hero. Wow. 
Hashtag hero. Can't argue with that, can you? I mean, that was the match we famously did the bicep kiss, which is what I'll remember it for. I'm um, doing one now. Yeah, um, it, I mean, yeah, thoroughly memorable and brilliant and worthy of being that strong a memory. Hashtag hero. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, he's... Uh... He is going to have an interesting life to to contend with the, the same way as the other guys have had to get used to parenthood and, and dovetailing it with, with professional sport. And Djokovic has done it now over the last few months, the last year or so. Federer has obviously done it with two sets of twins. Of course he has. Um, but I get the sense that there will be a real zen about Murray over the next year or two in many ways. I think he will be even more balanced. I think it'll help his his demeanour on court, personally, in that regard. I think uh, it, it is a little easier not to get quite as wound up when you are a father, in a way, and, and you know you, there's something more important in your world. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm not in a position to comment. Well, I, I used to lose my rag all the time. For both gender and parental-based uh, reasons. But I mean... Maybe, Let's get someone else on Maybe it. when you're behaving like... Maybe it's a little less easy to behave uh, like a teenager on court when you have to look in the mirror and see a father looking back at you. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Hey, do you, will he win any more slams? Yeah, I do think he'll win more. I think he'll win at least one more. Don't know when on earth it will be, as I say, that as I, I think... Djokovic will create a window at some point. I've predicted that Federer will profit from that window. So I don't... We need about two more slams a year, don't we, to fit in all the predictions we've made that contradict each other. Well, exactly. But I do think he will win one more slam at least, yes. Uh, Just one final one. I love this. Zoe Mum says, I saw him play John McEnroe in 2004 at the Superset as a replacement for Tim Henman. McEnroe liked him so much because he called him Sir. He called him Sir. Oh, that's adorable, isn't it? <laughs> but you can just... How how old would he have been then? 17? I mean, you probably would call John McEnroe Sir, wouldn't you? If you I still him, call him that now. He's a 17-year-old. I can just imagine how much John enjoyed that. Unquestionably. This has been The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. We come to you every single week of the year, unless Catherine's off gallivanting around the world on holiday. And uh, we will be back again next week, talking about tennis, talking about goodness knows what, predictions probably. We'll speak to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. 